Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I think it's, I think it's kindergarten and below. Go now. You can open your Bible worship time. Kids worship time. The rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're jumping over some verses and chapters this morning as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now I'm going to ask a very important, very deeply theological question this morning that you really need to struggle to answer, and it's this. How many of you guys like waiting in line? I hate to wait in line. Now, when you go to places like Disneyland or you go to places like Elitch's, you have to wait in those really long lines. And oftentimes, the ride itself is only maybe 20 seconds. And you wait in a four-hour line for a 20-second ride. We don't like waiting in line. How long have you waited for a restaurant? And the other question I would ask is, what's your threshold? What's your threshold of time that you're willing to wait to stand in line or to go to a restaurant? Now, some of you may say, man, if it's my favorite place to eat, I'll wait three hours in that line. Our threshold, my threshold as an impatient person is maybe like 20 minutes. And that's just me. According to Yahoo Travel, they came up with a list of the top 10 best restaurants that are worth waiting in their long lines. Number one, I've never eaten here before, but it's called Oklahoma Joe's in Kansas City, which has got world-famous barbecue ribs. Now, it's made almost all the lists, and I guess the line starts at 10 o'clock in the morning, and sometimes it can stretch all the way till it closes, so you can wait in line almost 9 or 10 hours to get barbecue ribs. And that's a long time to wait. You must really want to have those ribs. People will wait a long time. Number two, I've never eaten there before as many times as I've been to Louisville, Kentucky, but it's the Muscle and Burger Barn. It looked kind of gross. Muscles on top of a hamburger. Now, maybe, Steve, you like that. It sounds wonderful. Steve's a hamburger guy. Muscles and hamburgers. Number three, Hot Dogs, a famous hot dog restaurant in Chicago. You know, people are willing to wait in line for long periods of time if they find it valuable. Now, yesterday, we as a family drove to Colorado Springs to go to the farmer's market, and as we're coming back on I-25, it was bumper to bumper between Colorado Springs and Castle Rock. Now, I used to drive that all the time, and you know, you'd go 90 down I-25. I don't go 90, but everybody goes 90 on I-25. But it was bumper to bumper, and I was getting so frustrated, and I said, Don, let's get off this. I can't stand it. So we get off at Greenland and go on these windy dirt roads, and we end up in Parker, and then we end up having to wait for every light in Parker to finally get. So it was just one of those things where no matter what happened, we were waiting. It was one of those types of days. We do not like waiting in line. But what happens when you in life wait really long periods of time for God to act or for God to move. And it just seems like God's not coming through in the timing you'd like God to come through for you. What happens if you have to wait patiently through long periods of trials, 
long periods of suffering, and it, and it never seems like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and you kind of wonder to yourself, is anything ever going to change? Why do I have to wait so long? Is God going to come through for me? Why am I waiting? Why am I enduring such long periods of time to see God act? I don't like waiting. Well, this issue of waiting is front and center in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, we've leaped across a lot of chapters here. Last week, we ended up with David being hunted down and, and cutting the, the corner of Saul's robe. And we're fast-forwarding in time. And so basically, at the end of the first Samuel, uh, you actually have King Saul dying in battle. Actually, he gets wounded in battle, and he wants his armor-bearer to actually kill him. And his armor-bearer says no. And so basically, Saul commits suicide. He falls upon his own sword. And then Jonathan dies. And so David mourns the loss of Saul and Jonathan. And so now that Saul is dead, David is poised to take over as the king. But there's two enemies in his path. Abner, who is Saul's bodyguard, basically sets up a rebellion. And he gets Saul's son, Ishbosheth to be king. And for a period of time, Ishbosheth is the king over all Israel. But the tribe of Judah ends up following David because they're of his family. So there's this long war between David's family and Saul's family. And then eventually Abner's murdered. And then Ishbosheth is murdered. Some of David's men sneak into Abner's house while he's taking a nap. And they stab him to death. So there's this long, hard-fought battle between the house of Saul and the house of David. And finally, as we get to chapter 5, it's the moment we've been waiting for. When we started this journey with David, he was anointed by Samuel as a little shepherd boy many years before now. But then we come to chapter 5, and this is the moment that we see David anointed king over all of Israel. So let's read together 2 Samuel chapter 5. Let's just look at verses 1 through 5 to begin with this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people of Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, one of the things we're going to discover about this chapter is it's not necessarily chronological. This chapter is not in order chronologically. It's more thematic. This chapter is more of a snapshot of David's reign, David's kingship. And so it's not really in order. It's more thematic. And so we're going to look at some themes here. But, but here's the main theme of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Here's the main point that the writer's trying to drive home to us. And it's this. God is faithful to his promises even when it seems like you have to endure trials and wait long periods of time when you have to wait long periods of time and you have to endure trials 
The point of this passage of Scripture is God is faithful to you. God is faithful to his promise to you during those times. And we see that here to David. Now what I want us to do is I want us to explore three issues, three major themes. Again, this is not a, thema- not a chronological chapter, it's thematic. So we're just going to look at three themes here, and then we're going to see how they relate to us. So, so here's theme number one in this passage of Scripture. And we've just seen it in verses 1 through 5. The Lord fulfills His promise to David through many trials. The Lord fulfills His promise to David. Now, think about it for a moment. This is the high point in David's life. This is the moment he's been waiting for, for all of the tribes of Israel to come and to anoint him as king over the entire nation. Okay, this is the moment of truth. This is the big moment in David's life. And what type of, of king is David to be? Well, you see there in verse 2, he's to be the shepherd of the people. He's to be the prince or the king over Israel. He's to be the shepherd king. And as the shepherd king, he's to lead the people. He's to love the people. He's to guide the people. He's to se- secure protection for the people. He's the prototype of what it means to be the king of Israel. He's the shepherd king. But it's not been an easy path to this moment, has it? There's been a lot that David has had to endure to get to this point in time. Think about all the difficulties David has had to undergo to get to this point in time. Saul chucking his spear at David twice, trying to pin him against the wall. Saul hunting him down like a dog where he has to hide out in the caves. David being betrayed, as we looked a few weeks ago. David was betrayed by friends. The city of Calah, who he helped, the Ziphites, his own family, he's betrayed by those he thought were close to him. And then he's got these enemies, Abner and Ishbosheth, who've come against him and who've led these rebellions. And then not to, to forget the Philistines. The Philistines are always breathing down David's neck. Goliath was his first enemy. And so as a young man, David's anointed by Samuel, but it's kind of a private anointing there with just Jesse's family. But through all these trials, all these tribulations, all these issues, God is faithful to David and says, here's the point. Here's the time. David, I've prepared you for this moment. Now comes the moment of truth. You're anointed as king over all Israel. And God made that promise to David, and he fulfilled it. God is faithful to his promise to David. But number two, not only is God faithful to his promise to David, number two... And you may ask, where in the world do you get this, Pastor Sean? Number two, the Lord fulfills his promise to Abraham after hundreds of years. Not hundreds, it's hundreds of years. I think there's a misspelling on it. The Lord fulfills his promise. Now, you may think, well, what in the, where, I don't see Abraham in this passage. What in the world does Abraham have to do here? Well, let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 10, you will not see Abraham in here, but I want to tell you the story of why this is so important. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the, quote, lame and the blind. Who hated David by his soul? Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Millo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was 
with him. This is the capture of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. It had not happened to this point where Jerusalem was now the city of David, the city of Zion. But who occupied Jerusalem? What does it say there in your Bible? Verse 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Who are the Jebusites? God made a promise to Abraham 800 years earlier that his people would capture the Jebusites. Genesis 15 is when God makes his covenant with Abraham that he would have the promised land. Listen to what God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, 18-21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and who's last on the list? The Jebusites. All these ites. Maybe even the parasites. We don't know. God makes a promise here to Abraham. and says, Abraham, you're going to conquer the promised land. Your offspring are going to have the promised land. And by the way, there's this one nation, this one people that are going to be really hard to conquer. That's the Jebusites. Now, notice that the Jebusites are last in the list. Why are they last? Every time the Jebusites, every time these, these ites are listed in the Bible, the Jebusites are always last. And you have to ask the question, why are they last? They're last because they would be the last of the Canaanites that Israel would have to kick out before they could get the promised land, before they could get Jerusalem. And here we have it happening. The Jebusites were always this pesky nation that was in the way of the Israelites fully taking the promised land. Now that was given to Abraham. Now fast forward a few hundred years to Moses. What does God tell Moses? God says to Moses, your offspring are going to capture the Jebusites. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you. Here's all the ites again. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites. And who's last on the list? The Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. God says, when you go into the promised land, conquer them all. Get rid of all these ites. Get rid of the Jebusites. But here's what happens. Israel is not able to do that. Moses has died. Joshua is the new leader. And as Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, guess what? The Israelites cannot conquer the Jebusites. They could never defeat the Jebusites. It was the one pesky nation that the Israelites could never get out, get, 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 uh, get out of there. Joshua 15, 63. But the Jebusites... The inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. God made a promise to Abraham, you're going to have Jerusalem with the Jebusites. God made a promise to Moses, you're going to have Jerusalem, but you've got to get rid of the Jebusites. Joshua goes in to try to conquer, he can't conquer the Jebusites. Then what happens after the time of Joshua? You have the time of the Judges. These military leaders who were raised up to help Israel occupy the promised land. And guess what? The judges cannot conquer the Jebusites. Judges 121. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem 
So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Okay, 800 years. God made a promise to Abraham. said, you're going to have the promised land. You're going to have Jerusalem. You're going to have the Jebusites. And here it is 800 years later where God's finally coming true on that promise. And it's only David, the shepherd king, who gets to go in and occupy Jerusalem. Now think about a long time to wait. If you're an Israelite, you're probably thinking, okay, you're looking at your watch. I can wait 30 minutes. If we're Americans, we can wait 30 minutes, right? If it's a good ride at Elitch's, I can maybe wait two hours. If it's a trip to the Bahamas, I can wait two weeks. But I'm not waiting 800 years. That's a long time to wait. And so God made a promise to Abraham, and it's not fulfilled until 800 years later. And they may have thought, well, God's slow. God must not care. God made a promise. He must not be good on the promise. We can't trust God. And so God in his timing says, you're going to have to wait a long time, Israel, but you're finally going to get Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of David, the city of Zion. So God's faithful to Abraham over 800 years. It's a long time to wait to see God come through. A lot of things David had to go through to finally get to that point. Now let's look at number three. The Lord defends his kingdom against idolatry as the mighty warrior. Let's fast forward in the chapter. Let's go down to verse 17. You know, David has captured Jerusalem. It's the capital city. He's now set up his stronghold in Jerusalem. He's the king. And who's been his arch enemy all along? It's been the Philistines. The Philistines are not going to take this sitting down. So the Philistines said, let's cut together. We've got to go attack, We've got to go attack Jerusalem. We've got to go attack David. So let's pick up in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they were real happy about it, right? No, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord. There's David praying again. We always see David praying. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away, the idols. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, but go around to the rear. Come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourselves, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David defeats the Philistines twice. First by a direct attack, second by a rear attack. But it's interesting, there's two key descriptions of God in this passage of scripture god is referred to as the smasher and the striker god is the smasher and the striker look at verse 20 it says in verse 20 david came to baal perazim and the david defeated them there and he said the lord has broken the lord has smashed through his enemies like a roaring flood. The Lord has smashed down these idols. The Lord has broken down his enemies. The Lord has come and has pounded them. He's the pounder. He's the smasher. 
He's the breaker through. And then in verse 24, it says that the Lord came out to strike down the Philistines. So he's this warrior God. It's this picture of this, this warrior God that smashes idols, that fights for, for Israel, that fights for his people. God's this powerful army type of warrior that goes into battle. It's very much similar to Psalm 42 or Psalm 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. God's mighty in battle. See, everything in this chapter is about God's faithfulness. God is faithful to David after many years of trials to get him to the throne. God is faithful to Abraham and the Israelites after 800 years to give them Jerusalem. And God is faithful and says, listen, I'm going to be your warrior. I'm going to be your defense. I'm going to be the smasher of idols. I'm going to be your protector. I'm going to be the warrior God that fights your battles. So let's make this very real for you this morning. If God was faithful to David... And if God was faithful to Abraham, and if God was faithful to the Israelites, this same God is your God, and he's faithful to you. He's faithful to you. And you say, well, how? I mean, those were some pretty powerful things that God did back in history. I mean, those were specific promises made to specific people at a specific time in history. How are those promises come true to me? Because... I I don't fight the Philistines. I didn't capture Jerusalem. I'm not the king over Israel. I'm not Abraham. How how do these promises come to me? Well, God made some very powerful promises to Abraham and to David that come true for you, but they come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at what has God promised Abraham, what has God promised David, and what has God promised the Israelites that are true for you this morning? What did God promise to us through Abraham? Galatians chapter 3, 7 through 9, is a promise to us that God gave to Abraham. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here's the promise to us through Abraham, to you and me this morning. We would be declared not guilty through faith alone in Christ. If you are a Christian here this morning, thank Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had... Remember that song you sang as a kid? I am one of them. You are one of them. If you are a Christian here, you are a Christian because of the promise that God made to Abraham. And if you notice, that passage says that God preached the gospel to Abraham, saying that we who are Gentiles, we who are non-Jewish, would be justified by faith alone in Christ. And you may ask, well, what does it mean to be justified by faith? What does it mean? It's a big word we use in church, justification by faith alone. What does it mean? Here's what it means. Very simply, when you as a sinner place your faith in Jesus Christ, every single one of your sins goes out of your account and goes directly into Christ's account. So you don't bear those sins anymore. Jesus takes those sins. 
And on the flip side, it comes the other way. Jesus' perfect life, his perfect record, his perfect righteousness, when you trust in him, that record goes back to you. So now, through faith, you have the record of Jesus. And because you have the record of Jesus, when God is the judge of the universe, looks down upon your life, he doesn't see a life of sin, he doesn't see a sinner, he sees Christ, and based upon that, he can say, not guilty. You're accepted in my sight because of Christ. That's a tremendous promise. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've trusted Christ for salvation, there's no condemnation. That means there's no guilt. Your sins can't be held against you. You can't be held accountable. You can't be punished. You can't be guilty for your sins because those sins have been placed upon Christ and his righteousness has been placed upon you. Now, what's the practical application for you as a Christian this morning? Here's the temptation that we as Christians have. We tend to play these mind games where we say this. When I'm doing really good and I'm having my quiet time and I'm witnessing to my neighbor and I'm doing really good and I'm not cussing and I'm obeying the Ten Commandments, God must love me more when I do better. And when I'm really doing bad, when I'm sinning and I'm struggling and, and I, let, I let things slip and, I, and, and, I, and I'm faltering, God must love me less. So we tend to think that God loves us as Christians based upon our performance. When I'm doing good, God must really love me. When I'm doing bad, God must really not love me. And so you try to win brownie points with God by being on the treadmill of your own effort to try to somehow get in God's good graces. Here's the truth, Christians. On your best day when you're doing everything perfect and on your worst day when you're doing everything really, really bad, God loves you the same through Christ. It's a constant love that he has for you. You don't, have to prove your, you don't have to prove your worth to God. God's already proved his love to you by sending Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you, if you haven't made that exchange, if you haven't trusted Christ for salvation, your greatest need this morning is that you are guilty. You are under condemnation. You have every right to die in your sins and be punished forever in hell apart from a, a relationship with Christ if, if, if you haven't trusted him. So here's what you need to do. If you find yourself here today and you've not trusted Christ, you need to trust him. And the moment that you place all of your faith in Jesus, all of your sin goes to Jesus and all of his righteousness goes back to you and God can look down upon you and say, not guilty. That's your greatest need this morning if you're not a Christian, to be declared not guilty. And that's a promise that was given to Abraham it comes directly to us. Now let's think about David for a moment. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Turn over to Acts or swipe or click. I don't know how you use your Bibles these days. Some of you turn, you know, you can feel the pages. I can, some of you pull out your phone and whatever you want to do, your, your device. However you get there, get to Acts chapter 13. Paul, on his first missionary journey, goes to the synagogue in Pisidia, Antioch, and he begins to preach a sermon. And as Paul is preaching this sermon, he begins to rehearse all the things in Israel's history, and then he focuses in on David. And Paul begins to laser-sharp focus in on David and say, listen, here's some things about David, but here's how they come true through Christ. So let's trace Paul's sermon here about David. So Acts 13, 21. Acts 13, 21. This is kind of in the middle of Paul's sermon, but we'll pick up when he starts talking about what we've been talking about here in Samuel. Then they asked for a king. 
And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. From David's offspring would come the true king of Israel, Jesus, a Savior. Now let's go down to verse 32 and see how, how, how Paul begins to, to, to wrap this sermon up. Verse 32. And we bring you the good news. That's the gospel. What's the good news? That what was promised to the fathers, this he's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David died. After David served his purpose, he died. He he was put in a tomb. He never rose again. That was David. But look at verse 37. But he whom God raised up Jesus did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything that you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul narrows it down and says, God made a promise to David that David would have a son, And that son of David would not die like David did, but he would be raised again. And here's what he would promise you. Here's what the promise is for us. We would have all our sins forgiven by Christ alone. We would have all of our sins forgiven by Christ alone. That's the second promise here. And that's a powerful promise. I want you to think about something with me for a moment. Don't raise your hand, please. How many sins have you committed today? Just in your thought mind? You haven't even said them yet. You just thought them. Okay, how many sins have you said? How many sins have you done? All right, let's play a game this morning. Let's say that all of us are really good Christians, and we've only committed three sins today. Okay, just three sins. We've just committed three sins today. We're really good. In a week, those of you that are good at math, how many sins will we commit in a week? 21. In a year, if just three sins a day, we would commit 1,092 sins in a year, over 1,000 sins, just three a day. Now, let's say you live to be 70 years old. Some of you are older than that, even in this room, but let's say you live to be 70 years old. In your lifetime, with just three sins a day, you would commit 76,440 sins. That's just three a day. Anybody here want to even think about how many sins would pile up in their lifetime if they just sinned their hearts out? Anybody here pay for your own sins? Anybody here want to take care of your own sins? Anybody here want to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, hey, I can, I can handle my own sins? Here's the issue. We have a major debt to sin that keeps stacking up and stacking up and stacking up, and we can never even begin to pay for that. But notice what Paul says about the promise made to David. Through Jesus all of your sins would be forgiven and you would be freed from those sins. 
That's a tremendous promise for you today to know that every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, can be paid for by Jesus. So that you don't have to hold on to those sins. You don't have to carry those sins. Those sins have been paid for by Jesus. Now, God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to David. But what else did we see in this passage of Scripture? How did God reveal himself as the mighty warrior to Israel? He was the smasher God. He was the striker God. He was the, the mighty, powerful warrior God. Well, the question then becomes, okay, how is God your mighty warrior? How, how is God your warrior God? What has God smashed in your life? What has God striked in your life? What death blow has God laid in your life as the warrior God? Well, let's, let's look at Colossians chapter 2, 13-15. It'll be up on your screen. Listen to what Paul says. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, there's that, there's that truth again. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, not just some, all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the justification thing. That record of debt, that, that sin debt, it's been canceled because Christ has taken it. He, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. But look at verse 15. He, and I love this, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over the cross. He disarmed the devil. What's God's promise to you as the mighty warrior? He disarmed Satan and gave us new life through the cross of Christ alone. On the cross, Jesus was the smasher. On the cross, Jesus was the striker. What was he smashing and what was he striking? He was striking Satan. He was striking sin. He was striking your idolatry. He was coming as the warrior king on the cross to defeat sin, Satan, and death once and for all and to rise again so that they would be put to open shame, having no claim upon your life whatsoever. He's the warrior God who's accomplished that for you on the cross. So there's some promises that came to Abraham. He had to wait 800 years. Some promises that came to David. He had to wait many years. Some promises that came to Israel. But those promises are true for you today. Because of Jesus, you can have the power, you can have the grace to withstand waiting. Maybe some of you are in the pattern of waiting. You're just waiting. When's God going to act? Or some of you are in the midst of adversity. Man, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in trials, I'm in tribulations, and I'm just suffering. And you begin to doubt, is God there for me? Is God going to get me through this? Am I ever going to get out of this? Is it going to be 800 years for me? How long am I going to have to wait? See, Jesus is the shepherd king who can declare you not guilty before a holy God. Jesus is the shepherd king who's forgiven you all of your sins so you don't have to bear those. And Jesus is the shepherd king who's disarmed Satan and given you new life. So how do you respond? How do you respond to these promises? Well, I hope that your heart has been melted to see the glory of who Christ is and what he's done. Do you fall on your knees in praise and worship that Christ has done these things for you? He's paid for your sins. He's disarmed Satan. He's declared you not guilty. He's the one that's your warrior. 
You know, here's an interesting thing that happens in 2 Samuel chapter 5. What happened at the very beginning? The entire nation did what? Said all Israel came, and what did they do? They bowed before the true king and anointed him as the true king. So what did David do? David united all of Israel as one nation under God because he was the king. Here's what you and I do this morning. Just like those people in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we come before the true King Jesus, the anointed King Jesus. And what do we do? We bow before him and we pledge our allegiance to him and we pledge our loyalty to him and we bow under his submission and we say, Jesus, I'm placing myself under your right to be the king of my life because when you are the king of my life, you unite everything together. You're the forgiver of my sins. You're the one that declares me not guilty. You're the great warrior. You're the one who's disarmed Satan. And why do we do that? Because he's faithful. He was faithful to David. He was faithful to Abraham. He will be faithful to you. So when you suffer trials, when you have a death of a loved one, when you're facing a job uncertainty, when you're facing adversity, when you're facing doubt, when you're doubting God's faithfulness to you, when you're wondering, is God there? What you do is this. Anytime you doubt, you look at that cross and you remember how much God has proved his love for you by sending his son Jesus to die for you. Anytime you doubt God's faithfulness, just look at the cross and it all comes into focus because it's there that the king has laid down his life for you. And whatever it is you're going through now, he'll get you through because he's faithful to his promises. Let's bow our heads this morning. And let us in this time of prayer go before our great mighty warrior king. And let's make it personal. Whatever you're struggling with this morning, go directly to the king. Go to your mighty warrior. Go before him and Thank him for his faithfulness. Cry out to him. He's a faithful God. He will meet you this morning in his faithfulness. It seems that there are so many people in our life of our church that are just going through issues. And Lord, I don't even begin to know all that what people are going through. But I praise you that you do. And there may be some that have walked into this room this morning and they're facing what they seem to think are insurmountable hurdles, mountains. Father, maybe some have just come in here tired. Maybe some have come in here doubting. Maybe some have come in here guilty. Maybe some have come in here mourning. Lord, as we come before you in whatever state we come, we want to rest in your finished work on the cross for us. You are our mighty warrior. 
Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're the smasher and the striker. You can smash down anything that's in our way that's preventing us from, from following you. If it's sin in our lives, you can smash it. If it's idols in our lives, you can smash it. If it's Satan in our lives, you can smash him. You're faithful. Jesus, you were faithful to Abraham. Had to wait 800 years, but you were faithful. You're faithful to David. Had to wait through all those trials, but you were faithful. Father, give us a taste this morning for your faithfulness. We, we are not faithful. We, we are not faithful, Father. We confess we're not faithful. We lack faith many times. But Lord, help us to realize that it's not our faithfulness that sustains us, it's your faithfulness. So even when we are faithless, you're faithful. Would you help us this morning? Would you encourage us this morning? Would you meet needs this morning in only the way that you can meet needs? Would you give hope where there seems to be no hope? Would you bring repentance where there's sin patterns? And Lord, if it be your will, would you bring eternal life to those this morning that don't have it? If there's anybody in this room, Lord, that's not saved, would you bring salvation to them this day? We love you, Jesus. We praise you. You're our faithful God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.